It looked like a safe haven from the raging storm. It's an odd kind of place. Uh, who'd your folks get it from, Boris Karloff? Their hosts seemed like the essence of hospitality. You can stay here as long as you like. Wonderful. But appearances can be very oh. deceiving. What's the matter? Afraid of the dark? Lost? Yeah. Scared? Well, of course not. What's there to be afraid of? This house? Oh, don't be. So, you like toys? I'm a doll maker. I make the most wonderful toys. Dolls, puppets, soldiers, ballerinas. Nobody wants a doll that's special anymore, that's one of a kind. The weather brings out creativity. It helps me in my work. What kind of work is that? Witchcraft? episode, we covered Magic, the case that took place in a little town in upstate New York where three people passed away. They were beaten, drowned, and of course, stabbed by a tiny knife. Today, we will continue on our quest for the Swiss Army Slasher, aka the baby-sized butcher, the diminutive death deliverer, paring knife perpetuator, with a case that takes place across the pond in England. Now, you might be saying to yourself, I thought this was an American serial killer. And you would be right. But in this case, you will see many of the iconic calling cards of the Swiss Army slasher, leading many to speculate that today's case was committed by the very same perpetrator. I mean, hey, everyone deserves a vacation. The year was 1999. A horrific discovery had struck the English countryside, leading to international news coverage and a case that would live in English infamy. An elderly toy maker's widow. Hang on, that's one of those professions that's an immediate red flag. And like, what kind of independent toy maker is still around in 1999? I feel like the last toy maker was in like 1899. <laughs> well, he's dead, Katie, if that makes you feel any better. Fine. An elderly toy maker's widow, Hilary Hartwick, had recently passed away, leaving her small, gothic mansion to the state. What British officials discovered there rocked this little country town. 
The house was almost entirely comprised of bedrooms and workrooms filled to the brim with lifelike dolls. No. Oh no. This was not strange in itself, as Gabriel Hartwick, Hillary's deceased husband, had been a doll maker. But there were hundreds upon hundreds of these dolls, as if Gabriel had been continuing to make them and stockpiling them for years up until his death. No room in the house sat without at least one doll for company, and there were multiple rooms filled with rows of shelves with piles and piles of lifelike dolls. So did he never sell any of these dolls? Were they too lifelike, inhabiting Uncanny Valley? Right, is that like just a super niche market and he just overflowed the supply? But of course, there's nothing illegal about that. No, only somebody doing illegal things would say that. What they found in the attic and basement crawl space garnered the attention of the entire nation. In these spaces, they found the remains of five deceased victims of horrible murders. Though in various states of decay, all of these bodies showed varied and severe trauma from blunt force impacts to, of course, tiny stab wounds. Hang on, so did they live in the middle of nowhere? Because how else would people not smell five decaying bodies in a in one house? Yeah, right? So, like, total Ed Gein situation here. But, yeah, the house is in the middle of nowhere, which is kind of important to the case. Thousands of miles away across the pond in Boston, 19-year-old Judith Bauer glanced up at the TV from her newly rented apartment and saw an English countryside manor that looked eerily familiar. What kind of 19-year-old doesn't need a roommate? (laughs) Today, we will be discussing a serial killer case in which most of our information comes from the perspective of a seven-year-old potential victim. Judith Bauer, a little American girl, went on an English vacation with her father and stepmother and was the only member of her family to survive. Well, she obviously did it. This is the story of how little Judith Bauer escaped the mansion of dolls. I'm Karina. I'm Emily. And I'm Katie. And And this this is is The the Nameless Nameless Dead. I suppose now would be a good time to disclose my grandmother had a doll collection. Yep. How lifelike were they, though? Not really. They were antiques. Um, Did you almost get murdered? Well, so, so my mom likes to tell this story because they were all stored in the guest room that I slept in oh as a kid. Oh. oh my god! And they were like in this glass cabinet. And I guess one time we were staying over there, and in the middle of the night, I woke up, <laughs> freaked out, duh. But I knew they were important, so I didn't want to destroy them. So I like apparently <laughs> got individual sheets of toilet paper and draped them <laughs> over each doll. So you turned them into ghost dolls. <laughs> That's even worse. That's so much worse. (laughs) Now they aren't staring at me. (laughs) But you know Um, their eyes are boring through the toilet paper. I do not remember this. I've apparently blocked it. (laughs) (laughs) David Bauer drove through the English countryside with his new wife, Rosemary, and little Judith, who he had custody of for the summer. Now, according to Judy, she and Rosemary did not get along. Rosemary had no desire to have children, and it's arguable that she wasn't even aware David had a daughter during their courtship. Wait, what year is this? Aren't we talking, like, late 1900s, not, you know, 1800s? It's uh, 1987. So, okay, 1987. Still, 
like, why, how do you not tell your prospective wife that you have a child? Especially if you get the vibe that she's not a kid person. And, like, imagine marrying someone to discover they have a secret child. Like, nope out of there real fast. And then you immediately go on an international vacation with this one big happy family? Like, England of all places. <laughs> why England of all places? Like, at least go to a beach. Right? Fair enough. Somewhere cold and rainy. Oh, it is summer. It's So it's warmer, it's warmer and, rainy. and rainy. Doesn't help. <laughs> Lately, in response to Rosemary's frustration, David had had less patience with Judy as well. No, that makes me sad. He had begun fussing at her for constantly daydreaming and making up fantastical stories. She's a kid. As you can imagine, everyone's frustrations came to a head when their rental car got stuck in the boggy English mud in the middle of a thunderstorm. Okay, see if they had gone to Florida. They would still be stuck in boggy mud. <laughs> but England doesn't have thunderstorms. Really? Really. Huh. I mean, it rains, but they don't get like those huh. big, you know, southern U.S. thunderstorms that we get. Interesting. It was an anomaly. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm going to reiterate this a couple of times in the case. This is from the memory of a child who was seven years old at this point. And I was okay. traumatized by her parents. Fair. Maybe there was a thunderstorm in her memory. Seeing an English manor peeking over the treetops, the three decided to ask for help and seek shelter from the storm. Unfortunately, nobody answered the door when they knocked. Assuming the house is abandoned, they crawled into what they thought was a storm cellar to escape the storm. Nobody today would assume the house is abandoned. <laughs> like, I would definitely assume that the owners are just hiding behind a curtain waiting for us to leave. I would be. Yeah, no thanks. They were greeted, not by a storm cellar, but a full basement, as well as the homeowner, Gabriel Hartwick, and his shotgun. Fair enough. They did break and enter. Yeah. Once the misunderstanding was cleared up and the Bowers were shown to be nothing more than a wet, innocent family, Gabriel invited them to his kitchen where his wife, Hillary, began cooking a warm meal for everyone. Okay, so why didn't they answer the door earlier? Says the person hiding behind <laughs> uh, curtains waiting for someone to leave. Look, I said that's what I would do. <laughs> but still, yeah, to not answer the front door In and 1987. then cook dinner. Yeah. yeah. It was into this peaceful scene that three other soaked travelers busted through the back door. Wait, more people? So for a remote manor where all these bodies can go undiscovered for years, there sure happened to be a lot of surprise random guests. Right? This house is popping. <laughs> like, this could easily turn into a farce with people just busting into doors left and right. <laughs> a stabby, stabby farce. These three 20-somethings, also strangers to the Hartwicks, were Ralph Morris, Isabel Prang, and Enid Stewart. Isabel and Enid had been hitchhiking on a nearby road when Ralph picked up the two punk English ladies. Solid, solid move. Who wouldn't pick up two punk English ladies? Ralph, it should be noted, was American, just like the Bowers. Ooh. The Hartwicks, being incredibly hospitable to what was beginning to be a sizable group of complete strangers, set up rooms for the travelers. Little Judy was actually placed in a separate room from her father and stepmother. Before showing her and Ralph to their rooms, Gabriel gave them a tour of his toy workshop and gifted Judy a doll, Mr. Punch, to keep her company. Mr. Punch? Was this a Kool-Aid man doll? Because if not, that is a very odd choice for a name. <laughs> what the fuck? You're judging a seven-year-old's creativity in doll naming? Oh, I thought Gabriel named Actually, it. Actually, <laughs> I have no idea who named it. <laughs> I, I was assuming Gabriel named it. 
Like, here's Mr. Mr. Punch. Punch. I'll keep you company. You get lonely. Well, I need to know what this doll looked like. Right. Like, go get his friend. Is Mr. he a boxer? <laughs> um, He's okay. a jester. Why would the Hartwicks separate her, the seven-year-old, from her father and stepmother? I get not being in the same room, but at least, like, an adjoining room? It's, it's weird. I think that that's a really important question and also a question that I had. It seems weird to intentionally be separating a child from her parents at like a stranger's house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very weird. Full of other strangers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an important clue as well. Yeah. And it's also weird that, you know, the dad would not be like, no, no, no. I'd be more comfortable if my child was not across an entire mansion from me. But I guess he didn't. There's a certain amount of negligence that I get the vibe from him with this story. Hmm. Judy couldn't sleep. She was in a large, dark house with a bunch of strangers. Their vacation had been waylaid and a thunderstorm was raging outside of these unfamiliar windows. She decided she would get herself a glass of water. She grabbed her new doll and headed towards the kitchen. But on her way, she came across a horrifying sight that she could vividly remember even 13 years later. In the hallway, laying across the floor, was a heavily injured Isabel. Forensic analysis shows that Isabel's nose had been broken and she had sustained blunt trauma to the front of her brain. What seven-year-old Judy saw was a very hurt and bloody teenage girl begging her for help. According to Judy, Isabel was dragged by her ankles back into a random room of the house. Damn, by what? Did Judy see? She didn't see. In true little girl fashion, Judy ran to her father and told him, the elves got one of the girls. Oh, elves? Is that normal for a seven-year-old? Naturally, David didn't believe his daughter. As I said before, he had complained about her overactive imagination in the past. He told her to go back to bed and did the same himself. So at least walk your kid back to her room across this creepy house. Obviously, Isabel was attacked. And so nobody else heard that altercation. I mean, not even Judy. Like, she was awake at the time. Yeah. um, I don't have a great answer for that other than that this is not a small house. This is a really big house and everyone's intentionally divided into separate parts of it, I think. Hmm. Hmm. So this just makes the Hartwicks look even more guilty because this was their choice of who they put in which room. Yeah, very suspicious. Next, Judy went to Ralph's bedroom. The two had bonded during their tour of Gabriel's workshop, and she felt like she could trust him with the horror of what she had witnessed. Wow, this says something that she trusts Ralph more than her father. (laughs) She woke Ralph up by pulling on his toe and told him the same tale she had told her father. At first, Ralph didn't believe her either, but the dried blood stuck to her fuzzy bunny slippers convinced him to check it out. So, dried blood? How long did it take her to get over to Ralph's room? How big is this house? It's a mansion. A smaller mansion, but still a mansion. And so she witnessed what she witnessed, went and got her father, told him, had him dismiss her, then went to get Ralph and wake him up. So that's the time that's passed. I'm picturing the Rocky Horror Mansion. Still, even so, like blood doesn't dry that fast. It must be a, must be a pretty big house. The two went to the hallway in which Isabel was spotted and found a trail of blood leading up to the attic. 
While Ralph was brave enough to venture into the attic, he claimed he didn't find anything, which is kind of amazing considering what we know was up there. This makes him look a bit guilty, doesn't it? Once you see Isabel, and first of all, she's still alive, isn't she? So like, maybe theoretically. No, no. Oh, okay. Why didn't he wake everyone else up before going up to the attic? Yeah, I... Start screaming literal bloody murder or something. Or like wake up the owners of the house. You would think? So the next thing he did was gather up the other travelers Mm. and told them what he had discovered. Mm. And it didn't go as expected. I wonder why. For some reason, likely out of fear and panic, the group of travelers decided to shoot the messenger. Enid, Isabel's friend, accused Ralph of murdering Isabel himself while David called Ralph a pedophile for sneaking around the house at night with his daughter. Everyone's the worst. Fortunately for Ralph, the group didn't turn violent. Their scapegoating only extended to warning Ralph to stay away from them. This group sounds like the worst people to be stuck in a hostel with. Right, and again, I just can't believe that nobody's alerted the Hartwigs that all of this is happening in their house. Mm Mm-hmm. No one's seen the Hartwicks since Isabel disappeared. Ralph did run into Gabriel after the confrontation, and when asked about the trail of blood, he claimed he spilled paint in the hallway. Bright red turned brown paint? I don't think there was any question about whether or not that was paint based on the description. Yeah. It is believed that after this confrontation, Enid went searching for Isabel. We won't ever know what happened to this poor girl. The information we do have is very strange. Forensics shows that Enid was pierced completely through by seven small round objects that hit her at incredibly high speeds. Mm, Wait, so like bullets? Bigger than bullets and completely spherical. So like toy doll eyeballs? (gasps) Oh, no. Sure, yeah, that's a good theory. Terrifying theory. We're just going to stick with that? <laughs> well, marbles was my guess, but they're bigger than marbles. So eyeballs is a pretty oh. good... Mini like cannonballs? Oh. Okay. Though Enid seems to have been murdered by tiny implements, it is Rosemary's injuries that solidify the Swiss Army slasher theory. These injuries tell a sordid story, and I can't even begin to imagine how the police figured it all out. Rosemary was stabbed five times in her back and right foot by a tiny knife, which police were able to locate in and around her body, meaning she was stabbed, and the knives, plural, were left in her body, Uh, likely while she was still alive. uh, I thought stepping on Legos was bad. In fact, all of these injuries likely occurred while she was alive to suffer through them. She had some impact damage on her temple, as well as saw blade cuts on her wrists and ankle. It is believed she died when she was thrown out of a second story window, likely of the Hartwick's house. Following that, her body was moved multiple times before being discarded in the Hartwick's basement. And no one sees or hears all this happening. Right, like where are the other guests at this time? So the timeline's a little bit fuzzy on both her and Enid's deaths. Because, again, the majority of the story comes from the memory of a seven-year-old 12 years later after the murders. This is really intense mutilation to inflict on someone. Yeah. Yep. Does somebody have, like, (laughs) a real hatred of stepmoms or something? I I, I don't feel like Rosemary deserved this. Potentially a real hatred of women. Mm. 
Judy knew at this point that something was up. How did nobody else know? (laughs) It's always kids with the best perception. And she was not going to abandon the one other person in the house who believed her. She sought out Ralph in the kitchen just minutes before David, her father, attacked him. What? Why? Okay, so remember how Enid blamed Ralph for murdering Isabel and David accused him of being a pedophile? Well, so David's wife just went missing and he found Ralph alone in the kitchen with his daughter in the middle of the night. Mm, Okay. So I'm not saying this man is the most logical in the world, but I think he might have been justified in this. Yeah, we can see the steps he took to get there. Judy attempted to stop her father and explained that it was all a misunderstanding. She remembers falling on the floor as he pushed her aside, and that's it. David mysteriously sustained the least amount of injuries of all of the aforementioned victims. By all means, his injuries should not have killed him, and his cause of death remains unknown. Perhaps he died of shame from ignoring his kids so much. David sustained stab wounds to his left hand and right shoulders. And Katie, before you ask... I know for a fact that we're talking about blades about the size of, like, a fruit knife. I kid you not. My mouth was open, and the words were about to come out. So perhaps this is the fruit knife filet Ooh, good one. Yeah, nobody seems to have any idea what happened to David, and Judy is no help. The next thing she remembers is waking up the next morning in the Hartwick's living room. Gabriel Hartwick explained to Judy and Ralph, both miraculously unharmed after that night of carnage, that they were completely unaware of, that she and Ralph disappeared after dinner. Uh, Her father and stepmother departed for the remainder of their vacation, taking the two teenage hitchhikers with them. Wait, so Gabriel is just saying that the father and stepmother just, what, abandoned Judy to go party with hitchhikers? And the Hartwicks are just okay with having Judy hanging out? They seem to be very easy come, easy go. But this is weird. And how are Judy and Ralph not like, where the fuck were you last night? (laughs) <laughs> the only explanation I have is that they were afraid for their lives. I think like that's the most direct and logical, but it kind of depends on your theory of the case. The Hartwicks were afraid for their lives? No, Ralph and Judy. Ah, so they just bought like the explanation because they yeah. wanted to get the, out of there. They mm-hmm. kind of pieced it together. Let's also thing. keep in mind Judy seven. Yeah. So, like, really the focus is Ralph versus the Hartwicks. Right. And we have a situation in which it's possible that one of these parties committed these murders. Right. And if Ralph didn't do it, he knows he didn't. Everyone else is dead, and he's just got the seven-year-old on his hands to protect. So, mm-hmm. Okay. Whereas mm-hmm. if the Hartwicks didn't do it, then everyone's gone for reasons they don't quite understand, and they need to get these people out of their house. Yeah, but even so, like, why would they expend all this energy coming up with a story rather than being like, this this is weird, everyone get get out of my house. I guess if the Hartwicks didn't do it, then theoretically, I guess that means Ralph did, and then that means maybe he wrote the letter. So the Hartwicks uh, would think that the letter is real. So okay. let's talk about the letter. <laughs> because we haven't mentioned that yet. Whoops. Oh. Gabriel claimed to have found Judy and Ralph in the storage room. He also claimed that David had left his daughter a farewell letter, the contents of which Judy still remembers. Dear Judy, forgive me. I never was a good father, I know. Rosemary and I are leaving you here with the hope that you will have a much happier life living with your mother without us. 
You are moving to another country and changing your names. We are leaving you enough money for a plane ticket back to Boston. Love, your father. Be back ever? I'm afraid not, my dear. There, there, there. Some people just aren't cut out to be daddies. He thought that the best, the grandest thing he could do for you was to allow you to grow up in a household of love with your mummy. What about the two girls, my hitchhikers? Oh, yes. P.S. P.S. Uh, I'm taking the two hitchhikers with me. Okay, well, now I have to sign off every letter with P.S. I'm taking the hitchhikers with me. This letter is sus as hell. Like, he couldn't have waited to bring her back to Boston and then leave her with her mother? Yeah. Instead, just abandon her, you know, in a foreign country halfway across the world. Okay. It's especially important that Judy remembers the contents of this letter because Gabriel threw it into the fire when Ralph asked to see it. That's highly suspicious. This should have made any rational adult suspicious. You're a rational adult, Emily. Even more suspicious than Ralph should have already been. And let's be frank, he should have been really dang suspicious. The two left the Hartwicks with Judy promising to visit them in the future, and thank God she didn't. (laughs) Why would she make that promise? (laughs) Ralph drove them to the nearest airport, and they booked tickets to Boston to reunite Judy safely with her mother. Well, thank God for Ralph. I am struggling to understand why he was left alive if he's not the guilty party. Hmm. Obviously, she never saw any of the victims that night again, including her father. So did they not talk to the police about Isabel being attacked? Because that was at least a very, you know, concrete, real-time assault that they witnessed. Right. Ralph, at least, should be old enough to think about looping in the police on this. Isabel, they know for sure, was attacked, and that letter was obviously bogus. Right. So this is another really big question about Ralph's involvement in these murders. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't he immediately go to the police? But moreover, if he was the one responsible, why wouldn't the Hartwicks go to the police? Yeah, yeah. But you could make the argument that the Hartwicks didn't know any of this went down. (laughs) Katie is speechless. And just, but like also, Isabel was attacked? Yeah, okay. I, I got nothing. Although Judy's the only one who saw the attack and her body get dragged away. She just told Ralph about it. And then Mm -hmm. Ralph saw the paint. The the paint. (laughs) Okay. And then we just, what did he say he saw in the attic? Body? He didn't see anything in the attic. Oh, no. Okay. Hmm. Mm -hmm. But still, like, even if it is paint, a trail of blood looking paint leading up to the attic. Which the attic, as far as we can tell, was used as storage. So mm. why would you have open paint going to storage? Yeah. That's a lot of fucking paint. Like, mm-hmm. think about the trail a body leaves when you're dragging it. Yeah. Okay, I get that they're they're making a point about it being dried. But seriously, that much blood slash paint, like, it's not going to dry in 30 minutes, an hour. Even if it's latex. Even if. And I would... Assume the best doll maker would use oil based. Right. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm talking yeah, I about. No <laughs> I do know oil based paint takes forever to dry. And <laughs> <clears throat> perhaps it's acrylic. What about blood based paint? Mm, all natural. She was left to imagine what fate befell them until that fateful night 12 years later when she happened to see that familiar English countryside mansion on the news. So what do we think about this case? 
old English serial killer couple or our Swiss army slasher? Let's talk about how this case fits the profile. If you ask me, the sheer distance of this crime makes the Swiss army unlikely, but it's also impossible for us millennials to really conceive of the economic privilege that existed for our parent generation. Like maybe a serial killer international vacation was completely financially feasible. I mean, his family could afford to take a seven-year-old to England, so. I mean, rich people can be serial killers too. Yeah, I mean, like, it's functionally what Israel Keys did in the United States, slasher tourism. Hmm. So here's how it fits with the other SAS cases. Multiple victims killed in a short period of time. Like we saw in the 1978 Corky Withers case, the Swiss Army slasher seems to be a strange combination of a serial killer and a spree killer. These cases all involve multiple victims killed in a relatively short period of time, usually one to two days. And if all of these crimes were all committed by the same killer, it's really astounding he's able to like do so much damage and then completely disappear. And so he, this was what, seven years after the Corky Weathers case? So he was just dormant for seven years, nine years? Yeah. When we do see the pace speed up after this case mm. and then go into another dormant period and then start occurring again. All of these victims were killed by a variety of means, including, of course, murder by a small knife. In this case, we have two people killed in this fashion, David and Rosemary Bauer. So is there meaning in the fact that they were the only married couple in the house that night? From the Withers case, we've seen some focus on romantic pairings. Interesting. But then what about Enid and Isabel? Just... Wrong place, wrong time. Well, they weren't killed by tiny knives. Mm, yes. Okay. But were killed. But they were killed. That applies to the Withers case as well, right? With the mm. agent? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. While the majority of Rosemary's stab wounds were located on her feet, she and David did share similar stab wounds in their upper backs. This is a departure from what we've seen the SAS do thus far. He typically goes for the lower gut wounds that are painful and fatal. I don't believe, and like this is entirely conjuncture on my part, I'm not an expert, I don't think that either of these wounds would have killed the victims all on its own. Maybe the SAS got taller. <laughs> Maybe. Got a step ladder. Yeah, so yeah. he was a child. Yes, exactly. <laughs> for the Corky Weathers case. Had a growth spurt over seven years. So he's like, what? I think we've cracked it. 15 now? <laughs> Of course, the slasher always had victims murdered by other means as well. And in this case, half of the victims were murdered by other means. Isabel Prang was beaten to death, while Enid Stewart seems to have been killed by small projectiles. Look, I don't have any idea what this means. If the slasher is responsible for both these murders and the Withers case, it seems like they're just coming up with more creative ways to kill people. Beating someone to death with a ventriloquist dummy and then shooting someone with doll eyeballs. Like, it's beyond me. <laughs> he's really stepping up his game. Yeah. He's, he's not weird. a slave to a genre. This case involves a child. And this is a new addition for this case, but we'll see it consistently in the future. Uh, maybe the killer is developing a fixation on childhood? Well, and are we going to be looking at all the cases in chronological order? Yes. Okay. Children begin showing up frequently in these cases. 
They're rarely victims, and at times, such as in this case, we get firsthand information about these murders. Emily, I really like your idea about a fixation on childhood, because that would explain the next consistent thing we see, which is toys. Indeed. There's no question about the presence of dolls or toys in this case. With Gabriel Hartwick's job as a doll maker, the house was floor to ceiling with dolls. As we discussed before, it's a strange calling card, but I guess that's the point. And it, it kind of calls back to the first case, too, because the ventriloquist puppet was technically yeah, a also a doll, yeah. Mm-hmm. What mystifies me is the sheer variety of dolls that we've already seen thus far. So, like, a ventriloquist doll, and then these, like, handcrafted individual dolls... So it's not always the same doll, it's not always the same type of doll, and it's not the same relationship of victim to doll. Mr. Punch. <laughs> Look, he's trying on a lot of shoes, he would fit, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In regards to the other bodies found in the house, there were more victims of stabbings with small knives, more victims with concussions, impact damage, and more victims with strange injuries that police had a hard time explaining. Do we know anything about the other bodies? Not really. Uh, it was an English family, two parents and a child. The child survived again. There were no police interviews with a child after the fact, so as far as I know, they they weren't able to locate them or get any useful information out well, of them. Do we know when that happened? Around the same time. Like, we're looking at same year for sure, but possibly, like, same month. I really question the ability of the local police department here. Just not doing their jobs very well. Well, they're in a really remote town, so they're probably also, like, what, the town cleric? And (laughs) (laughs) I mean, still, you'd think in the 80s. Pretty (laughs) sensational, a bunch of murders, like, calling Scotland Yard or something. (laughs) Okay. I don't know anything. (laughs) (laughs) My focus on these very specific victims is simply because we had the most information on this night of carnage due to survivor Judy and her brave act of coming forward and telling her story. So was this the case of an elderly serial killer couple undiscovered until their deaths in the late 90s? Or was all of this the work of the Swiss Army slasher on a European slaughter occasion? Well... It would have had to have been an extended vacation, right? Because the other family, I'm just interested in the timeline. How long would the Swiss Army Slasher have had to have been in that town to kill everybody? Well, we've seen him be pretty efficient thus far. What, the Corky Withers case happened in two days? And then the part of the case that we know happened in one night. So in order to kill two more people, I mean, he seems pretty efficient. Still, you got to lure these people to this remote English manor. I don't know. I'm I'm thinking the perps were the elderly couple yes. here. Not This might not be Swiss Army Slasher. Because also, how on earth would a third-party killer murder all these people and stash them in somebody else's attic without the family that lives there? Ever finding those bodies in the attic. Right, because we know that the toy maker's wife, who slash co-serial murderer here, lived in this house another 13 years. Alternatively, 
Ralph could be the Swiss Army slasher. Yes, but again, that relies on the fact that the Hartwicks never go in their attic. Right. <laughs> never go in their <laughs> have attic. No sense of smell. And if there's storage up there, like how how long has that storage been there? Right, Did he's got to get go his paint more? down at some point. Yeah, yeah. That leads to the question of could an elderly couple take out two teenage girls and a younger newly married couple? Like we're looking at some potentially fit people here. It seems like they took them out one by one, so maybe they tag teamed it. Maybe Ralph is related to the elderly couples. We don't know his last name. And he picks up hitchhikers and brings them to the house when he's there on vacation. And he just doesn't like killing children, so he lets them go. Yeah. Well, and then flies them back to Boston. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look, they bonded on the toy tour. They did. Ralph Morris. Ralph Morris. I mean, could be like a maternal relation. Yes. Why, if she was part of this murdering tag team duo, why would the toy maker's wife leave the house to the state when she died? Like, like to discover the bodies. One last fuck you. Maybe. I'm dead. You can't do anything. Well, it's entirely possible she didn't have any relatives to leave the house to, which would, you know, take out that whole Ralph Morris is related to them Uh, theory. I see what you did there. Unless she's so mad at him because, I don't know, he didn't (laughs) murder enough people for her taste. (laughs) Cut her off cold turkey. I think we're starting to extrapolate a little bit here. <laughs> you no. think now? Now we're starting to extrapolate? <laughs> Join us in two weeks to hear the next rumored Swiss Army slasher case, Puppet Master. And until then, don't be nameless. Don't be dead. This episode was written and edited by Karina McGeehan, hosted by Emily Shirley, Katie Jeffries, and Karina McGeehan. Our producer is Derek Adams, and sound and music design was done by Ian Ennis with mixing by Alan Rowell. I mean, rich people can be serial killers, too. P.S. I'm taking the hitchhikers with me. (laughs) 